And uh, this is Akimo saying, <laughs> you're watching the Cloud Machine podcast here on your favorite streaming service. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Cloud Machine podcast. My name is Matt Landry. And in this ninth episode, I'm back with Akim O. Throughout this podcast, we discuss Akeem's love for vinyl, DJing, curating, the Beatles, dreams, and projects. We also play a little game called Guess That. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Cloud Machine podcast. For those who are new to the podcast, Cloud Machine is about the music industry and its stakeholders, meaning everyone that works in it, lives it, loves it, surrounds it. Our goal is to shine a light on different roles, people, and peoples, and realities of the music industry that are often forgotten or taken for granted. Whether you're someone that's dreaming about making a move in the industry, have some songs recorded, and don't know what to, or, or, and don't know what to do with them, or just a listener that wants to learn more, you're at the right place. This week, I have the immense immense pleasure of welcoming back one of my best friends and collaborators to the podcast once again for part two from last month's podcast. Akeem O is an artist, multi-instrumentalist, producer, creator, historian, vinyl curator, and DJ. Having been based out of Ottawa for the over 10 years, Akeem has garnered a respect in the English and French music industries as an artist, visionary, and facilitator of all things music and live experiences. I really believe that Akeem is a, like a library or a database for music history knowledge, and you'll really get to know that side of him during this episode of the Cloud Machine podcast. For more information, for more information and to get in touch with Akeem, you can get in contact with him at his website, akeemo.com. That's A-K-E-E-M-O-H.com or on socials at Akeemo Music. Without further ado, please welcome again Akeem O to the Cloud Machine Podcast. Hey. Hey. It is great to be back. Hey, settle down. Settle down. Okay. <laughs> hey. Come on. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, yeah, it's back to be. It's great. It's back to be. Yeah. It's great to be back in Toronto, man. Thank you yeah. for coming by once again. I thought Thanks. I thought we were deserving of the second episode because um, I don't know. It was great last time, and just we didn't get to to talk about all of the sides of Akimo. So thanks for being back. I wanted to start the episode by asking you the same kind of question, but that we ask all the time, but sort of a, in a different light. Your best experience or your favorite experience more as a, as a DJ, actually. Okay, um, okay. So, for those who don't know, Akeem is a DJ. We have a duo group together, a vinyl DJ drum duo called Wax as well. Um, but please, take us through your favorite experience as a DJ. Yeah. Not not to influence your, your answer there, but please. I mean, it, it kind of is... Uh I don't know. There's there's a few that come to mind. You right. Know, like I think the early wax days, which were like in your apartment, you know, on Wellesley Street, um, <laughs> that was iconic. You know, we would we would host parties at your place, um, and then we would DJ the night, and all your pals would come, and it yeah. was all creative people, and like they really really enjoyed those nights. You know, mm-hmm. and I remember one of those nights when. Uh, the cops show up because yeah, obviously we're making some noise, you know. Oh man! Um, yeah. But they saw our elaborate, um, you know, setup, and they were like, "Oh, like no, no one's smoking weed." 
right, you know? right, right, right. So they just kind of let us continue. Yes. You know? Like it was great because even then we we already had you know all the equipment and everything. Like you know I brought a bunch of lights from Ottawa to do that. Yeah. Um, the whole so, vinyl setup to mm-hmm. DJ drums in the house, in the apartment. Yeah, and this was a small one bedroom apartment, but we had like what 40, 50 people in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was. That was definitely a highlight for myself. Like, that's definitely a highlight. Um, When we played at uh, the 27 Club in Ottawa after our gig at the National Arts Center, you know, we were so tired from the first gig, but we went out and we did this show and, you know, there was like maybe 200 people there. It was wild. It was such a good night. Like, (laughs) solid vibes. Like, yeah, I if there's like, one night I'd love to like relive just for the fun of it. Last year it would have been that night for that sure. Night. It was great. Do you have any good, great memories about some of the nights that you've done um, as a, like a wedding DJ or as a private event DJ or is are those kind of limited? <laughs> I mean, there's always some great <laughs> moments. You know, like I remember this one time I had uh, to DJ a wedding outside of the city, and I was given an address. And I drove an hour and a half out of Ottawa. Right. But the wrong way. Oh, no. And, like, the wedding was about to begin in, like, two hours. So I, like, I literally sped that day. Like, I (laughs) was zooming. I get to the venue. It's outside. Yeah. And it's raining. But, like, the organizers are like, oh, no, but it's still going to be outside. And I had rented all this equipment. So I didn't want to damage it. And then, like... Five minutes before the wedding, um, the sun comes out. And (laughs) so I got all the equipment out of my car. I put it up as quick as I could. And the wedding began. Wow. And it was wild. Right. Yeah. But it's funny because I was so stressed out about that wedding. Mm -hmm. But then the dance itself was just like, like the reception and everything was great. It was just like such a good time. Right. And then like I often see... Um, like the couple in the French community because like, um, you know, they're both very, very involved in, in the French community right. in Ontario. And they always come up and they're like, you know, when you DJed our wedding, that was like, <laughs> that made everything better. And they were talking right. about how the, the aunts and the uncles and the family are still talking about how good it was. Right. So it was a really good time. And uh, yeah, I, I want to live more kind of DJ experiences like that mm-hmm. because I've also, you know, DJed weddings where the bride and groom end up in a fist fight at the end of the night <laughs> because they're way too drunk. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all kinds of, I've seen all kinds of things, you know, yeah. I've DJed for over 15 years and man, I've seen some things. <laughs> all to say book DJ Akeem. Oh, is that, is that your official DJ name as well, or DJ Akeem, or... I mean, it's funny, because I started when I was, like, you know, 12 or 13, and at the time, I was, like, DJ Akizzle, <laughs> which is ridiculous. That's, like, so embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was embarrassing. Akizzle. Yeah. Let's yeah, go. Like, okay. my early business cards have DJ Akizzle's DJ <laughs> service, and it's just me with, like, wearing, like, Aeropostal or whatever, and just, like... You know, working like the knob of like, <laughs> uh, like eighteen channel mixer, like oh my god, yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, <laughs> wow. but I still have some of those somewhere. Dang. But uh, those are, it'll be it'll be at the again. museum for sure. Yes, one day. Yeah, yeah. le musée du Akimo. 
the next question here I have for you is is sort of related to that um, because you worked at the Record Center for so long in Ottawa. Shout mm. out Record Center. Yeah. Uh, in Ottawa. Um, what's the greatest thing that you ever saw at the Record Center um, or that was brought into the Record Center? And I'll, honestly, I'll, I'll kind of push it forward to a job that you have now at Cicada Sound. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the greatest thing that you've ever seen in one of those two shops? Yeah. Um, well... The record center, there was all kinds of really interesting things going on, you know, yeah. like, um, and like sometimes even just like, I don't know, it's like the everyday people were great. And then like the kind of like public figures that came in were great. Like Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo would come, right. um, Jagmeet Singh uh, from the NDP would come and, and chill. And what was great was that we just would have these interactions as normal human beings it was very like oh yeah like it doesn't matter what your your status is you're always welcome to come in and right. just share your love for music mm-hmm. um but yeah that like the record center like I've, i found so many like autographed records in the most random of places right you know like um one of the last autographed records i found at the record center um, like I found one, it was Roy Orbison with like all his band and it wow. was like Hal Blaine, which is like, who's an iconic drummer who played on, you know, on like pet sounds and so many like iconic yeah, studio drummer, you yeah, know, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, finding that I found some ACDC records that were signed. Okay. Uh, wow. uh, I've held like some signed like George Harrison records. Like there was, there's honestly so many great things that happened at my time at the record center. And then at Cicada, you know, like there's a lot of like musicians that come in, you know, members of arcade fire, uh, death from above. Right. Um, but the coolest thing that happened for me was on my very first day at Cicada sound, um, a Jupiter six comes in. Okay. And these are, they're quite rare. And, it was in mint condition, um, and one of the owners that day was like, oh, do you want to bring it home? And I was like, what? <laughs> this is like an $8,000 synth. He's like, yeah, you want to bring it home? Yeah. Like, you want to try it out? And I was like, no, it's okay. Like, I'll, I'll just try it out in the store, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you, did, was... you didn't end up bringing it no, home? No, okay. Oh, my God. But you did bring end up bringing some other things home, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Some of the perks yeah. of working in a sort of music shop i guess mm-hmm. in general and specifically do you want to talk about cicada sound for just a couple of course couple seconds yeah so it's like a, a new shop in ottawa that's um selling a lot of modular uh boutique instruments and pedals right. um kind of like serving the um i don't know just like the the different types of music that might not be represented in, you know, like a Long and McQuaid or like a, a chain shop, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. So we're bringing, you know, our expertise on modular instruments, uh, vintage synths, um, and like we're bringing Hoffner in, which I'm really, really excited yeah. about. Um, and you heard just, it here first, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> it's an exclusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a great shop. And yeah. It's, it's nice because it's all people that are just really passionate about it. And also, anyone can come in and try an instrument out. Right. You know, like, that's the type of place it is. And for me, like, community-oriented and forward-thinking type of, um, of businesses is something I love because, like, I've always had a bit of that mindset as well. Right. 
Um, so yeah, it's been great and it's great. been nice to just share my love and knowledge with people. Yeah. I'm super excited to come in the store uh, next time in Ottawa. So let's get that, uh, let's get that sorted. Let's go. The next thing I want to ask you about, and this is, this could, could be a long winded question here, but your passion for vinyl, mm-hmm. this is one of your, I mean, first loves, I guess, um, Please walk us through like your 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 love of vinyl and like your vinyl collection specifically, and um, yeah, I'll ask you more mm-hmm. questions later on that. But just like a general overview on on what you think about vinyl and your collection. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess it just started by my parents just having that. Like we we had yeah. uh, like a, a game room at home, like a, a rec room where like. There's like a pool table and like a bunch of like our toys growing up. And there was this setup, you know, like for a turntable and an eight track player. So I remember hearing Thriller as a kid. Like that's my earliest music memory, hearing Thriller. Right. And I still remember how it sounded coming out of those speakers to this day. And it's funny because when I listen to that record, I really want to replicate that sound. Right. Because like it's just it's just such an important sound to me, you know? Um, so that's how it started. And yeah. then being a fan of the Beatles, you know, and being a fan of a lot of like sixties and seventies music. Right. I really wanted to get it. Like I wanted to play it in the same way that like my parents would have played it at the time, you right. know, and it was on records. So I started to kind of look for, yeah, look for records. I mean, Mattawa is not really the place for records, you know, yeah, yeah. but, um, on my seventh or eighth birthday, my parents uh, gave me a turntable, and it was like a really nice Panasonic turntable. And I was given a few Beatle records um, from a guy. His name is John Whalen. Um, Shout out John Whalen. Hey, yes. yeah, he he was a great guy. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, he gave me a bunch of records and that's how it kind of started and yeah. then it was like going on family trips and finding out there were record shops um and then just like that started my complete addiction to uh, to <laughs> records you know what's your collection like now i know like i i know but mm-hmm. please let's yeah. t- let's talk about that for a bit you you basically have a living room uh full of of records um yeah, do you want to talk about that for a bit? Was that yeah. was that an important thing for you to have like a space in your home for 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 those physically? It was a need for sure for the mm-hmm. amount of records that you, you have, but just like a listening space that was, was that important? Yeah, definitely. I think that like for me, since it's like it's almost an experience every time I listen to a record, I really wanted to have a dedicated space where I could really just sit down and take that music in you right. know i feel like with with streaming you know it's often when you're on the go you know or when you're doing something else where right. it's like you know to really enjoy a record you have to be present right you know like because yeah you're going to have to go up and flip the record you know so you're paying more attention to um the whole piece of work instead of just like oh you know the single, the hit song, right? You know, the trending song, right? It's a process yeah. in itself. Yeah, that's why it's like it's such a, it's an art in itself. Just the consumption of it is art because you have to interact with it. And mm-hmm. I thought I always thought that was great. Um, do you have 
certain prized possessions in in your in your collection. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know I just it really one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, a couple prized possessions, maybe top three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I can bring it to three. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, like I, I mean, like I have a a Ram, like a Paul McCartney Ram promo. Yeah. Um, maybe two hundred of those in the world. They were sent out to college radio stations, and it's basically like a bunch of clips of every song, and then like Paul and Linda just like doing random chatter and stupid stuff so yeah that's a nice one and it's like um a white like like a plain white cover um and like it comes with like you know just like papers that would have been given to like radio stations and stuff at the time right just to yeah it's just like lots of like little musical uh, uh, cues i have a john lennon record uh where there's only uh, well, they say there's 10 of these in the world. Oh, my gosh. Which is, yeah, which is wild. Yeah, and yeah. I bought that in Ottawa from a shop thinking that, like, at first I thought, oh, yeah, like, they made colored vinyl of this specific John Lennon record. And then I get home and I just cannot find any real info on it. And I did a bit of digging. And it's a guy that worked for Geffen Records. Right. Who um, had done private presses so he did five in one color and five in the other color and he gave it out to friends and then he got fired for doing that and then yeah i have one of those at home (laughs) which is crazy wild you know wow yeah okay and then other than that like i have like you know like like an mgmt test pressing for their third record right um lovage music to make love to your lady by right which is like a side project from dan the automator uh, under the name Nathaniel Merriweather. Um, yeah, and it's, like, one of the first projects that, like, Damon Alburn did, you know, leaving uh, Blur. Right. Um, Kid Koala's first project. Like, it's it's one of those records that, like, it took, like, almost 25 years for that record to be reissued, and, like, there's, like, constant legal battles and stuff, so it couldn't get re-released. But right. um, the last time I saw Kid Koala... We spoke for a little bit, and he was like, oh, yeah, like, by the way, like, Dan started to buy back all the rights to his, like, his ARC records. So it finally got reissued last year. Nice. But it's cool, because I have, I have the original. The original, you know, yeah. The real deal, Dang. you know, at a time where, like, they weren't making vinyl. So Right. Yeah. I feel the passion when you when you talk about vinyl. And that's it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you back, because we didn't necessarily get to... Th- talk about it last time um the next thing is still on vinyl is your first vinyl and then your last vinyl do you remember what your first vinyl was as a kid i mean i always just like to say that it was the michael jackson record right like, the thriller record yeah yeah for the longest time my parents thought that it was like a record that was worth a lot of money because it's michael jackson right so they kept it under their bed for years and years and years and I remember wanting <laughs> to take it, you know, and they were always like, no, it's worth money, you know, but like right. Thriller is one of the best selling records yeah. of all time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They literally sold l- like multiple millions in the 80s and like so many of them are still around. Yes. They're, like they're not worth, you know, as much as people yeah, they, like un- to say they are. It's not the under their bed kind of record. That, yeah. That, <laughs> that mm-hmm. your that's that's yeah, funny. I've never but, heard of that. Yeah, I do have it now. Right. Merci. Hey. And uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's 
just like it's completely scratched up. Right. But it's like, yeah, it's in my collection. It's like part of, yeah, of my identity. Yeah. Well loved. Yeah. Well loved is right. Yeah. And yeah. do you have a last record? Yeah. Last record. I mean, I'm trying to think of what the last record was. Yeah, for, like for, from our conversation, yeah. I feel like there hasn't been that much vinyl purchasing lately. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been uh, like I've, I've been trying to kind of cool it on records for a bit, right? Um, just because like I have so many other interests right now too, and I have so much time to, to you know to to get into buying more records. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, like I I bought like a Mitski record uh, okay. not long ago, yeah. like uh, Laurel Hell, which yeah. is I think is. A great record, one of the great records from last year. Um, I bought a Stones record, right. Beggar's Banquet, which is like there you go. A, classic, a classic, you yeah. know. Pleased to meet you. you know? So, yeah. Yeah, just like random things I find. Yeah. You know, I bought a Fleetwood Mac record. Oh, yeah. Which is rare for <laughs> me because yeah. I'm not huge on Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. But they have this one record, and I, I forget the name of it now, but it's basically it's a man that's standing there, and he's kind of, like, sucking in his belly, and there's, like, a kid that's kind of, like, around him. Right. And, yeah, it's one of the last records that the original Fleetwood Mac made uh, with some of, like, the, you know, well-known members kind of, like, starting out in the band, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I uh, there's a few tracks on there that I really really enjoy. So I saw it for like eight dollars, and I was like, "Hey, there you go." Eh? When I think about Akeem, I think about the Beatles, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we could sort of have many, many, many episodes on just the Beatles in itself, yeah. probably year per year, um, and even more than that. Yep. Um, which could be a podcast idea, um, but and it's probably already one out there. Um, I guess my first question for this topic is, what do you love about the Beatles? <laughs> huge question. Yeah, that is a huge question. Honestly, I still don't understand why I love the Beatles as much as I do. Um, it's it is an addiction for me. Honestly, it right. just like it is the biggest love I have in my life. You know, and that surpasses records. Um, right. I think it's just. That it, it was so timeless for me. Everything they've done, even don't pass me by. <laughs> <laughs> Shout is, out Ringo, <laughs> we love you, Ringo. <laughs> um, you know, is um, it's all very fresh to me, right? You know, like I listen to like a lot of stuff from the '60s, and some of it sounds dated. Whereas like the Beatles stuff, even like their early recordings, for me they don't sound dated, you know? Right. There's, like, so much energy and love that was put in that, like, it kind of just, like, transcends the whole, like, oh, it's old and it's old recording techniques and, you right. know? So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's just there's a timeless quality to it that is definitely missing in music and, like, even a timeless quality that, you know, maybe started to go missing in the 70s, you know, after the whole kind of decade of Beatles dominance. You right. Know? How have how have the Beatles left a mark on you um, from multiple different ways, I guess, from in your personal life, but also on your artistry? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, um, 
like loving the Beatles like that is a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Because as a musician, I just want to make stuff that's like really timeless. Right. And sometimes that might stop me from just like taking the time to do something for myself at home that's like maybe just current and not timeless. Right. You know? So, yeah, sometimes I tend to fall into these, um, I don't know, where I'm, I'm always kind of comparing. Um, but it's interesting. McCartney will release a new record and, you know, people will say, oh, like it's not as good as Ram or Chaos and Creation, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. But it's funny because his stuff still has a huge impact on what I do. Right. Like sometimes I will look back at some stuff I've done in recent years and be like, that's a modern McCartney move. Right. You know, like that's Egypt station. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And, and it's funny yeah. cause like he has a song, uh, for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which was like a lot of people were just like, Oh, that's Paul being horny, you know? Right. Um, but it's funny because like the way the vocals are done on that track, I've done that type of effect on some songs. Right. Where, like, I'll take songs and just pitch it up and use that as an instrument. You know, right, like, right, right, right. I do that quite often, you know, and right. it's an Egypt station trick. Right. You know, <laughs> right, it's right, like right, it's right. a modern producer trick. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I I don't know. The, the I really don't know. They've, they've just had such a huge mark in so many ways. And I think that as as someone of color, it's also great to look back on them and be like, oh, like they were super influenced by uh, by black groups, you know, by Stax records, by Motown and, and chess records, like so many labels that like were pushing forward black artists um, and they weren't afraid to talk about it. You know, even right. in, in conservative U.S. when they were going to do tours. Um, sometimes they would have, uh, promoters be like, oh, like this is a segregated show by the way. And they would be like, no, it's not, you know, right. like they made sure to, to have it in their contract to say that there's, there's no such thing as segregation at our shows. Right. You know, um, yeah, they, they were definitely, um, you know, forward thinking and, yeah, it's it's just played such a, a huge role in, in pretty much everything I do. Yeah. I have a note here, Motown on the Beatles. Mm -hmm. um, do you, did you want to talk about specifically that? I know we, we you just mentioned it, but Motown on the Beatles, and I mean, it is it is a common place, it's a common place to talk about the, the, the role that black music have, has had, or had, I guess, on the, the Beatles uh, music. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to... Uh, just a couple more words on that specifically sure. for Motown or yeah um, I mean you know the the Beatles really did get that kind of like like for example the song like getting better where it's like duh, 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 and kind of like chill on that four four right they got that from Motown right like Motown was doing that you know mm -hmm. in like 63 64 and by 66 67 when they started to do kind of like more of like the psychedelic pop thing. Right. It was it was from Motown and they weren't afraid to say it, you know, that like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like got to get you into my life. Yeah. You know, like that kind of like um like the the bass hitting on each beat type mm -hmm. of thing. Um yeah, was was definitely like a typical Motown thing and right, right. it became like a Beatles signature in the mid sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you do you think do you think it ever had an I am honestly I'm just asking you this I don't even know but do you think that the Motown sort of business aspects the Barry Gordy um, all those things even like in house production do you think it had an effect on the Beatles even when you're talking about sixty six sixty seven uh, in the in the in the face of them going to Abbey Road to kind of bunker down sort of like what the Motown production sort of factory in Detroit was like, do you think it had an effect there? Um, I I don't know. I've always like thought Mm -hmm. of that, I guess. Yeah. Like I think a little bit, but you know, at the time it was pretty routine for the studios to just like have their engineers. Yeah. Whereas like now you can bring, you know, as as long as your engineer knows what he's doing, you can bring him to any studio and work with him. You know, like some artists will literally work with, one engineer and then a producer you know or a producer who engineers Mm -hmm. um but i think that like part of their timeless qual uh like timeless sound was also because of all the engineers at abbey road that you know wanted to continue to push the envelope right um i mean with the gear they had at abbey road um a lot of it was kind of dated because you know like you know, they had two track and four track and like a track only came in 69 when they were doing Abbey Road. But like, you know, a track, they had a track in like 1965, 66 in the States, you know. Right. So it's, you know, they were always like a little bit late on certain things, but they took what they had, you know, like the they took the limitations and did so much more than what other artists were doing with eight tracks. You right. know, the the limitations were what allowed for them to to evolve as studio musicians and and basically producers because like by sixty seven, you know, they were coming in with their ideas. You know, like I mean, Paul was bringing in a lot of ideas. Um, so yeah, the limitations like help them kind of go somewhere that like right. you know, other places or yeah. other studios weren't able to do because they had yeah, the they had to they had yeah. They had to, right? Mm-hmm. It's cre- it's creating and constraint or whatever that term is, I forget now. Yeah. I'm blaming the French again. Um I, but yeah, I agree like creating with creating in limitations and putting limitations on on yourself is also a method of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, I guess they weren't, they didn't have the option of going farther. So mm-hmm. th- it was sort of like a self, not necessarily a self-imposed constraint, but no, I completely agree with you there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they completely changed the game, um, yeah. especially when it gets to 66, 67, mm-hmm. um, with all those recording techniques and Abbey Road and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Um, do you have a favorite Beatle? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm a huge Paul fan, Yeah, you know, and, like, I feel like a lot of people love to hate on Paul, but, like, man, he's he's the real innovator, you mm-hmm. know, the forward thinker, and I think that because of, you know, the whole, you know, John Lennon myth, you know, that, like, Paul's work has often been put aside, um... But yeah, Paul was a was a, a driving force. He was the one that did brought or did bring um, you know, the tape loops. He was going to to raves, you know, like um he was the one going to all of these things and and Lennon eventually followed and and 
carved his own path and you know met Yoko Ono yeah who uh who was uh, also an artist in her own right <laughs> yeah no yes. yeah no um, I totally agree you know honestly a lot of a lot of that kind of leadership and a lot of those like the just that energy comes out as well in the documentary that came out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um to me it was very um present it it, it it was sort of obvious the leadership that he had in that group mm-hmm. in that documentary because the band was sort of like in different pieces they were like broken a lot yeah. and john was going through his addiction stuff um george was like completely out of the band at one point of that documentary mm-hmm. ringo was just chilling most of the time but he didn't really yeah, he didn't chilling. have the influence that paul had yeah. it seemed like and and mm-hmm. just like for him to go um through that process and us being able to see that now i mm-hmm. mean it's yeah. so great because people will be quick to say that Ringo was the real glue because, you know, the other members of the Beatles, you know, they all loved Ringo. They all stayed close with Ringo. Yeah. But, like, Paul was the one that would make the calls, you know. Like, there's these uh, famous interviews where, you know, John and Ringo will be, like, chilling at home and they would hear the telephone and they knew exactly who it was, you know. Because it was Paul, and he was like, okay, we've got a session. Like, let's get together, boys. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, man. And it would have been interesting to see where they they would have went next because, I mean, they all released these brilliant records, you know, and, and even Ringo released some brilliant records, you know. Like, I mean, for me, Buku of Blues and um, the Ringo record, you know, there's so many great tracks on there, and, you know, George with All Things Must Pass. Yeah, George. Yeah. yeah. Like Great. Lennon, you know, Plastic Ono Band, and yeah. then Paul, like both McCartney and Ram, you yeah. know, there's timeless classics on there. And yeah, yeah they could have done, they could have definitely done another record, but at the same time, it's also okay that they did their own thing. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, I think that, like, especially after, you know, that amount of time, you know, like John, Paul, uh, and George knew each other for 13 years you know they were young when they met so like yeah yeah. it was like all they spent their formative years together Mm -hmm. so i'm sure that it was difficult for them to to split but you know it's also kind of part of life yeah it's okay yeah yeah do do you think that the the beatles would have would have been less 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 mythical if they would have lasted longer than they did like i think that like their influence would still be felt in the industry but who knows you know like for me um like a lot of people will be quick to um you know to to put the beatles and the stones in in the same box you know but like for me the beatles are always going to be a step above because you know when the stones started john and paul were writing some of their songs right you know um and you know i feel like every record the Beatles released was part of an era you know and like sometimes it was like they were going through two eras in one year because they were releasing two records a year yeah no it's crazy you know yeah yeah so yeah I think that yeah the scene would definitely be different now if they like it would be a a tiny bit different if they would have continued because maybe they would have brought more ideas that you know that uh 
Yeah. That they eventually mm-hmm. researched by themselves or like thought mm-hmm. of by themselves. Yeah, no, yeah. I totally agree. Um, I have a note here as well. Uh, the influence of the Beatles on the industry of today. Mm-hmm. Um, are there parts of the industry today now that you, ref- you, you see and you're like, oh, that's a Beatles move? I mean, <laughs> the whole like, you know, merchandising thing was very new when the Beatles, yeah. uh, you know, when, when they came to America in 1964. Um, yeah, they were some of the first bands to have m- merchandising deals. Right. You know, so like they had all kinds of things. Like they 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 had beetle panties, right? And like bras, you know, like that. Bruh. <laughs> you know, um, I got one. No, I'm kidding. Come on. <laughs> no, I'm not like that. Come on. Um, but yeah, they were one of the first bands to do that type of thing. Yeah. Um, they did so many firsts, you know, and like honestly, like I feel like I I could do a whole episode of just like beetle firsts. You right, know? right, right. That's yeah. like, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the whole, it, mm-hmm. what you're saying is basically that the whole industry is influenced by the Beatles of then. Yeah. Um, but like at the same time, like you could go as far as saying that like the Beatles were, well, McCartney was, you know, he invented, well, the Beatles invented the, the indie label thing with Apple Records, right. you know, because indie labels weren't really a thing. Like, even though they were distributed by capital and everything, mm-hmm. um, and then outside of, of the U.S. and Canada, Apple was a label. Um, but, like, Paul recording an album at home, like, that was uncommon. You right. Know, like, the Beach Boys had done it with a few records in the mid-60s, but, like, they they sold poorly, you know? Like, they, they, they didn't really have the impact at that moment. They do have an impact now, like, those like the three lo-fi records they did. Mm-hmm. But like McCartney, uh, like I was reading today actually, because uh, I've been reading a, a McCartney book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, McCartney, like the first McCartney um, was one of the top sellers of uh, 1970. Right. Um, and then it's funny because when I, I remember listening to Ram or maybe just giving it a bit more of a real listen and like, some of that stuff, like, you know, bands like of Montreal and MGMT, they've borrowed so much from that era of McCartney. Right. You know, like the kind of like modern psychedelic thing. Uh, yeah. Often comes from, you know, the Beatles and the zombies, the Beach Boys uh, and McCartney. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's definitely still a huge um yeah, they've definitely left their mark on on music, right? Yeah, both in in the music, but also in the business. Because mm-hmm. you're saying all these firsts. I yeah, s- that's a great that's it's a great thought on mm-hmm. that. Um, let's move a little bit away from the Beatles for just a minute, because uh, we're gonna get back to it. Um, I wanted to shine a light on the DJing thing again. Um, you don't know what I have on my page, oh, so oh. so <laughs> so just just to tell y'all, Akeem doesn't necessarily know because we didn't necessarily prep for this interview. Um, not this interview, this podcast. Excuse me. Um, tips and tricks on DJing. Yeah, I know it's a vast, it's very vast um, ask, uh, and you haven't necessarily thought about it. Um, tips and trick, t- sorry, tips and tricks on DJing, but also. Maybe even curating a playlist as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it's just like read the room. Right. You know, like really just read the room. Because like it's 
like sometimes you'll go out to I don't know you'll go to an event and the DJ's just playing whatever he wants to play you right. know he'll play like you know like uh, 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 <laughs> and you're trying to have a conversation with someone well like I guess the DJ didn't read the room like right. if he would have read the room he would have seen that like oh these people are talking let's put some chill beats or something right, you know right. and then you start to build up you know as as people start to mingle and kind of move and like you know then you start to to kind of pick it up and once you see that like people are starting to get excited about the dance floor just like put on a classic right and that will get people to come out it's like i don't know you put like i got a feeling or something you put like right. you know like a, a throwback yeah, yeah, from yeah, the yeah. 2000s and suddenly it's like oh my gosh like i remember where i was when this first played right you know and then they automatically feel like either they want to dance or they have to dance right you know yeah, 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 and yeah. then you keep them on the floor you yeah. put some hits and then if you see there's like a lot of couples and they're getting all gross and coupley then like throw in a slow right you know so yeah it's a bit of uh just like reading the room i think that's really important yeah you're number one mm-hmm. um i recently shout out shout out Masterclass. honestly shout out quest love again i know the last time you were here and Basically, in every episode, I talk about Questlove. Um, but he has a masterclass on DJing and curating. And he has uh, so many other DJing tips. Um, and, like, in this, like, 10, 15 episode kind of DJ masterclass, it's actually insane. One of the things that I, I remember specifically from those things is that the time the time always matters. In the sense, like, the time of the evening always matters. In the sense that at when it, when it approaches, let's say, midnight or something, or 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, you want to play your hits at those times of the night, as in the, the, at the half hour, at that one hour mark, at those whatever marks. Basically, the, the more important times of the, of the night. Um, because... People will be like, "Oh, we'll leave at one. We'll leave at one thirty. We'll leave at two o'clock." But if they don't check their phone or their watch or whatever at that time because a hit is playing, mm-hmm. they'll be like, "Okay, well, next time I check, okay, we'll we'll leave in like another five minutes, and then another hit plays." Yeah. So like, there's a this whole like, there's this whole like um, strategy to it that mm-hmm. I didn't think about before I saw that Quest Love Masterclass. And for those who know. I'm a huge Questlove fan, so I I, I got to watch that masterclass. Even even if I'm not that, even even if I'm not that much of a DJ, except mm-hmm. in high school. Shout out to everybody that was at, there at the DJ Matt Landry DJ high school dances. Okay. Um, I I've done that as well, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think like for me, and I guess for Wax as well. Yeah. Um, it's always been about um, like almost having little sets. So like right. at one point in the night it's nice to have kind of like laid back chill and some people will continue dancing others will get a drink talk a little bit and then suddenly it's like back to the hits you know right and then people are back on the floor having a good time um and it's nice to also just throw in things that they might not know yeah you know you kind of mix it in in a way where like i don't know mix it into you know like you have one track that someone knows or the people know another track that's, you know, 
kind of like a deep cut or something like i don't know like some polui pattern or something right right and then mix that into like sexy back or something <laughs> right, you know right. this and massive then, like, yeah. massive banger yeah because yeah, you're like you're like okay this is chill like this is chill laid back i might not understand the words but like it's percussive it's nice and then you're going like this and then suddenly burn and then the arms come out and you're like you know <laughs> like you know you just like mix it up a little bit yeah 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 get yeah. people dancing and yeah. uh yeah right. yeah i feel like when you're djing it's not like when you're you're an artist and you're you're um doing something for yourself and expressing yourself i mean there is a side to to djing that is yourself you know like you you, you definitely want to put your love out there for the music but right. it's really about the people there you know you want to create an experience with well for them mm -hmm. and i think for wax that's what it's been we're like we we have fun on stage we do all kinds of other projects and this is like our i mean all our projects are fun but this is like another fun <laughs> project where we can connect with people in another way yeah you know totally. so for those who don't know wax w-h-a-c-k-s is double entendre in wax meaning vinyl uh, and wax, meaning drum hits, drum wax. Um, so we are a vinyl and drum DJ duo based Ottawa, Toronto, kind of a mix of both. Um, and yeah, we do like full nights of uh, drumming and DJing. We've done like four hour nights where I'm drumming the whole time and my hands literally are bleeding like uh, the Ringo Star. It's a Ringo Star reference for those who know, mm. um, and it's it's always been a great time um, interacting with the crowd. And especially, I don't know how you feel about this, but adding a drummer to a DJ set also adds like this whole other element where it's more like interactive and people mm -hmm. sort of like know the the natural kind of sounds. And I I add my own rhythm and beats on top of some songs that we already know and kind of mm -hmm. switch it up for for the people. So. I've had a great time doing that thing, man. I hope yeah. we get to do it again soon. I hope so too. And it's, yeah. it's cool because, um, you know, we're, we're also doing these events in places where you normally wouldn't really have an event. Right. Like we've, I mean, we've, we've done, you know, apartments, we've done cafes, uh, we've done clubs. Um, the, the real difference, cause I, I, like when we did the Halloween thing, we did one night at the 27 club and one night at art house in Ottawa, which is a cafe. And, Peop, like a lot of people went to both and the first night they liked it you know um but they connected even more on the second night because we were we weren't on a stage we were on the same level as them we were close and people could see you play right yeah, you yeah, know, yeah like yeah. people saw that you were into it and like and it's not just the arms and and, and the hands it's like also like your legs moving and yeah like, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah like they were really part of the process right you know which is like that's that's how it should be, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. If if you're curating a night for people, you want them to be part of the process, right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what makes it all worthwhile. And we are back with Akimo on the Cloud Machine podcast. It's great to be here, <laughs> man. We got. Um, I've prepared a game for you here. The game is called Guess That. For those who were here. I mean, throughout the podcast, you know, this game, guess that is basically, guess that artist, guess that song, guess that lyric. Uh, it can be a bunch of different things. But for you specifically, um, I have a guess that Beatles edition. Oof. The pressure is on. The pressure is on. It's like when you put that little cowboy music. 
<laughs> it is high noon. Hey. Um, basically, I have just a bunch of different questions. Um, it's mostly all individuals. So it's it's um, in the sense that it's guess the beetle. Basically. Okay. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So Pete best, Pete best, no. <laughs> Pete best. Hey, hey yo. Um, question one: Who was the first grandfather out of the Beatles? Uh, <laughs> I would like to say, like, I feel like it's like it's not an obvious one. No, I think it's. I can't fail in the first question, you know. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. I think it's Ringo. It is Ringo. Yeah, hey. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. yeah. I think it's either Zach or Jason. It's Tatia Jane. No, but I mean the his kid that had him. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I was like, okay, Tatia yeah. Jane. But that's what I thought. Yeah, because uh, Paul became a grandfather in 1998. Eight or nine, because it was like a few <laughs> months after Linda had passed away. Okay. Yeah. Because wow. there's a famous McCartney picture where he's on the couch relax- relaxing and the baby's just like. Right. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Taken by uh, Mary McCartney. There you go. Yeah. And it was like kind of like a sentimental thing because Mary McCartney, you know, continued in the footsteps of her mother. Right. As a photographer. Yeah. So it was like continuing on the, you know, the there you go. Yeah. Well, you got the first question right. Yes, I did. Yes. Mm. Um, this might be an easy one for you, but yeah. who says, oh, fucking hell during Hey Jude? Oh, it's John. Apparently not. No, it's John. It's John. This, they might yeah. be, they, they might be wrong here because I trust you more than this yeah, random site. Yeah, because like the... Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's John. Yeah, it's John. Okay. What does it say? It says Paul, but he's singing, no. so it doesn't make sense. Nah. Yeah, yeah. Nah. Okay. Nah. Yeah, that makes sense. Who appeared in the Monty Python's Life of Ryan comedy? That was George Harrison. Hey. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. There you go. Because, yes. uh, yeah, George Harrison helped uh, fund because uh, the uh, the company that was funding the movie... The day before, it was like, we're pulling, we're going to pull the funding. Right. So Eric Idle, who's like a a well-known Monty Python uh, legend, uh, called his friend George. And George was like, yeah. And one of like the the funny things that Eric Idle says is um, how it was like the most expensive, uh, whoa, it (laughs) it was the most expensive movie ticket. You know, there you go. For George, yeah. yeah. You know, so yeah. But George was great, man. You know, like he was some someone that was like not really about material possessions, but at the same time, he had a castle with 120 rooms, you know. There you go. So yeah. he's, yeah, I love him. And we're back again, Akimo. Um, <laughs> he's here. He is here. Mm. Uh, Ottawa legend. Um, I wanted to ask you going into a different topic now. Um, your dream projects and your future projects as well. Um, do you want to start with your future future projects? What do you got going on right now? What do I have going on? Right <laughs> now? <laughs> I mean, I've been recording for quite a long time, honestly. Yeah. Um, but uh, there will be new music in twenty twenty three. Hey, 
You heard her here first. Yeah. Well, no, not necessarily, yeah. but yeah, because been, you've been promoting. I've but. been promoting it for ten years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, no. There's there's new songs that I'm really excited about. I'm I'm writing some really cool stuff as well. Right. Um, and yeah, I'm just honestly very excited to see where where um where it will go. I feel like, you know, I feel like I will reach new heights. I feel like with every move I've made, um, you know, there's always like, you know, it's a step forward. You yeah. Know? Like that's how I see it. You know, like no matter what it does, it's a step forward in my journey and I'm happy with that. Totally. Yeah. What about dream projects? So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's a big question. Yeah. And honestly, you don't know this yet, but the last topic of the conversation is another game, oh. um, which is a whole other thing that we'll talk about soon. Mm-hmm. But what are yours? What are your, some of your, some of your dream projects? And that's a ve- it's a very like wide kind of mm-hmm. a thing. But either yeah. recording or live or like stuff like that. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that like come up to my like in in my mind. Yeah, um, like I would love to write some instrumental music. Okay. Whoa. And send that off to a rapper and have the rapper chop it up and make whatever they want to make with it. I think that it would just be so cool because I think that sampling is really fun. Yeah. So, yeah, if a rapper ever decides, like, hey, I'd love to take a track and just, like, mess with it, like, yeah, I think yeah. it'd be great. And, like, yeah. if it comes out, it comes out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I think that there is a certain, like, thrill to just creating to create. Yeah. Um, so that would be fun. Um, I want to score. I'd love to do some scoring. I think one of my favorite, uh, just because it's so like not a film score in some way. Um, so the film her. Yes. Yeah. With Joaquin Phoenix, um, and, uh, arcade fires music. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, it's kind of like an unconventional way of of scoring a film. Mm-hmm. And just like the fact that sometimes it's just a drone or like, you know, kind of like raw sounds going through reverb to kind of um, create an intense moment. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to do that with like an indie film, like an indie right. film and do that would be so great. Um, You've done some mu- mm-hmm. uh, theater stuff. Yeah, I've done some theater stuff. I've done a bit of film stuff, too, for, like, Lifetime and, like, Hallmark and Hallmark, stuff. Hallmark, yeah. Um, which is fun, but it would be great to do, like, a, a full feature or, like, have an Akeem O song in, in a film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah. Honestly, as long as I can continue to express myself in different ways, like, that's that's all I want in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything, do you have any dream projects for live? live i mean yeah there's there are a few that come to mind i'd love to and this has been in my mind for like you know like at least 20 years yeah it's like i started thinking about this when i was a kid so i guess there'd be two so i would love to do like a show with an orchestra right like take my songs break them down and have an orchestra play it Mm -hmm. and i'm just in the middle with a condenser mic Right. And I'm just closing my eyes and just singing, you know, like yeah, that yeah. would be great. And like, I don't know. I, that's the type of thing I'd love to do at the NEC. Right. Like, <laughs> kind of like almost like a homecoming, you know, like right. a homecoming in Ottawa for me would be to play at the NEC with later on with like the NEC orchestra. Right. Like that would just be a real thrill for me. And I think that I would just be very emotional. Yeah. And then I would love to play in Mattawa. You know, I have not played in Mattawa for 
11 or 12 years. And yeah. even then, I felt like I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. I was signed to a label that did not give a shit about my personality and what I wanted. Um, so I'd love to go home as a chemo and play the summer festival. There you go. And just like literally be a diva in front of everyone who's ever just like bullied me and has not believed in me. Um, that would be something really special. Hey, yo. For those who have been following the Cloud Machine podcast for a while, you know that we you might have seen this game before. This is called the Producers Game. Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give Akeem six different categories, and he'll answer them. And this game is basically your ideal or your dream album. So the six categories are the artist, as in who, who's going to put this record out. And th- there could be features, stuff like that. So there's artist, who's going to produce the album, who are going to be the musicians on the album, hmm. at which studio, in which city. So to be specific here, you can have a, you can have a studio okay. in a different city. Damn. And in which, what, what, in what year? What's the era? So again, okay. who's going to put this album out? Who's going to be producing it? Who are the musicians on the record? The studio, the city, and the era. Now, it can be multiple artists, multiple producers, multiple musicians, whatever. But I'll give you time, and we'll, we'll come back to it. All right. You're done? Yeah. Hey, all right. There you go. <laughs> okay. So we're back um, after giving Akeem a little bit of time here with uh, the producer's game. Please present what you've got for us. So in 1969, uh, at the end of 1969, um, Paul McCartney and his family went to his Scotland, um, like his Mall of Kintyre um, home. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's like very remote. And so uh, the company that he was part of because of the Beatles, Apple, received a telegram from Jimi Hendrix inviting him to come and record an album with him and Miles Davis in New York, (laughs) which is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And so he never got it because he put aside Apple completely at that point. So he just learned about it later. And that telegram actually surfaced like maybe 10 years ago. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So for me, yeah, it'd be McCartney, Hendrix, and Miles Davis. Right. Um, and at CBS Studios in New York, where like a lot of like the iconic CBS records were done. So like Miles Davis, uh, Kind of Blue was recorded there. Right. Um, all of like the Simon and Garfunkel records, um, Bob Dylan records. And it's actually where Ram was recorded. Yeah. Like okay. McCartney's Ram. Yeah. So, yeah, in 1969. Yeah. And I'm not going to put a producer because. I think that it would have been interesting, you know, because you have McCartney and Davis who are perfectionists. Yeah. And then Hendrix, who's easygoing. Right. So, like, I just wonder what kind of dynamic would have it would have been, you know, because McCartney could have also, like, he could also be the artist that was just jamming around and having a good time, right. you know. And sometimes there was, like, brilliance in, in, in that type of stuff, too. 
Um, but he was also an artist who kind of knew what he was looking for. Right. And still, know, it still knows what he's looking for, you know? Yeah. So it could be interesting to see what could have happened there. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't assign a producer, yeah. Because if George Martin would have been there, I feel like it would have been, okay, we're doing a proper record type of thing. Right. So leaving these iconic and experimental musicians together to do their own thing. Like it could have been like another bitches brew. Right. Or it could have been another McCartney. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It, it, who knows what it could or have an been. experiment mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Do you have any ideas for other musicians that would be on board for that? Um, or would I you mean, leave it to them kind of thing? Yeah. To like, decide? I mean, when it comes to like a, a drummer, um, like, I don't think I would go with, with Keith Moon because Keith Moon, like, there'd be a lot of, like, excess, I find. Right. Um, like, I'd, I would want, you know, like, a drummer to just kind of, like, drum along, right. you know, and that might be Hal Blaine. Right. You know, either That's uh, Hal great Blaine yeah. or, uh, fuck, what's his name? Jim Keltner. Right. Which yeah. would be, yeah, a, of you, course. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because Jim, Jim Keltner is just like, he's listening and he's just like, do, 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 and he's playing and then do 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 do. you know just like he's kind of just listening and just like adding stuff in between yeah toms yeah some toms you know i knew that was coming there you you go yeah so yeah i mean that's that's kind of who i would see and like i don't know like if if there was any kind of like strings or something to be added um i would go with the arranger that worked famously with uh serge gainsbourg okay you know who is like who kind of just would add strings kind of just like in between random passages of music. Right. You know, um, like he did that on like Histoire de Melody Nelson, um, where like you'll have a song kind of playing and then there's just a random swell and the orchestra's gone for a while. Right. You know? So I think, yeah, having an arranger like that kind of just like listen and kind of instinctively know where to put those things would be great. Whereas I feel like, yeah, George Martin it would have been very pretty. Right. So, and yeah. you you'd go CBS in New York. Yes. So both both mm-hmm. s- still the same studio, still yeah. the same city. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And cool. like, I mean, at that point, they also had you know a sixteen channel, you know, so like they they would have enough to do, and they and they had really nice pianos there and all kinds of things. Like I think that like, it's an iconic studio that has an iconic sound. Right. And it would have been also just like a departure for McCartney. Yeah. You know, doing that there instead. And, and for Hendrix as well, too, I would think. I'd like to thank Akimo for being on the ninth episode of the Cloud Machine Podcast. Thanks again for coming. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. you for having me, man. Yeah, it's man. It's been a pleasure. And it's great to, you know, because we work together quite often. Yeah, we text like, every day. Yeah. <laughs> we, we randomly talk about little things, you know, and, and I don't know, like influences and stuff, but we never really sit down and like, I don't know, just like go even deeper on that. So mm-hmm. it was great, man. Yeah, it was so yeah. insightful to, th- well, this time around, even to talk about like your, your passion for vinyl, for the Beatles, um, and just like, even that ga- the producer's game was so fun just yeah, to, to, hear, to hear your take on that. Um, yeah, man. Thanks again for coming. Thank you for those who are listening, watching us. Um, it's been really great to, you know, see the reaction, see the comments, see the interaction. 
like I just said just two seconds ago, the French is coming out again. But mm. um, just seeing the people that 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 really um, care for this podcast and um, you know that send me messages and stuff. So please continue to do so. We are here to answer your questions, uh, see your comments. You know, and uh, this is Akimo saying <laughs> you're watching the Cloud Machine podcast here on your favorite streaming service. <laughs> Thanks again, everybody. Stay safe. We'll see you next week.